By examining the lives of women on both sides of the stockade, we can begin to build an intricate portrait of the Ballarat goldfields in 1854. Instead of a rough-and-ready outpost of bachelors out for a quick buck, we find a heterogeneous and largely orderly community of working families intent on building a new life of freedom and independence. Ultimately, as we'll see, it was the intimate, ambitious matrix of expectations, associations, disappointments and frustrations that culminated in the brief but bloody moment that aired miners' grievances and elicited official reprisals. Women's presence does not just add colour to the picture, it changes its very outline. There is a vast scholarly literature on the gold rush era generally and the Eureka stockade specifically. I am indebted to the many fine historians who have worked over this terrain before me. Weston Bate, David Goodman, John Maloney, the Jeffreys, Searle and Blaney. I am also grateful for the pioneering archival work of local historians Dorothy Wickham, Laurel Johnson and Anne Begg Sunter, whose exhumation of information on Ballarat's early gold rush history, and especially its women, has been heroic. I've tried, within narrative reason, to exclude from this book what you can readily locate in any bookshop or library. I have included, sometimes in great detail, that which you won't find anywhere else. In particular, chapters focusing on women's participation in the social, economic and cultural life of the goldfields provide important data not previously revealed. Who knew that stores on the diggings sold breast pumps to ease the pain of lactation? or that dancers and balls provided paid childcare so that babies didn't need to be left in tents when their mothers went out for the night. This book is not simply a new inflection of an old story. It offers up a fresh body of scholarship for future dissection and, I hope, rampant expansion. My aim is not to enter the usual interpretive controversies that have raged about Eureka for over 150 years, which side was to blame for the violence and bloodshed, whether the rebellion was a parochial tax revolt by small business or a republican insurrection, or whether Eureka even deserves the press it gets as a key landmark in Australia's democratic traditions. Nor am I looking to settle old empiricist scores. Who fired the first shot? Who amputated Laylor's shattered arm? Historian Robin Anir has called the rebel leader an octopus, given how many people claim their ancestor lopped off his limb. The exact topographic location of the stockade site. Whether Scobie was murdered by a blow to the head with a shovel or an axe. Even who sewed the flag. In this book, Eureka Files will discover previously unearthed factual details about key protagonists and events in the affair, and Eureka-phobes might reconsider their antipathy to a left-leaning legend once a more humane landscape re-emerges from the flames of political polarisation. For Eureka is a story that is already so familiar and so emotive to Australians that successive political giants have seen fit either to make triumphant speeches on its anniversary or pointedly to scorn its relevance. On the 3rd of December, 1954... Victorian Premier John Kane Sr. addressed the 70,000 people who had flocked to Ballarat for the three-day centenary celebrations. 
From Eureka came the crusading spirit against injustice, he bellowed to the delirious crowd. On the 3rd of December 1973, unveiling the newly restored Eureka flag in Ballarat, Prime Minister Gough Whitlam hitched the spirit of Eureka to his own progressive agenda. The kind of nationalism that every country needs, intoned Whitlam, is a benign and constructive nationalism that has to do with self-confidence, with maturity, with originality, with independence of mind. In 2004, National sesquicentenary events were incommoded by then Prime Minister John Howard's steadfast refusal to fly the Eureka flag at Canberra's Parliament House. It is neither my intention to undermine the centrality of the Eureka story in Australia's collective imagination, nor to elevate it beyond the ideological rubric of historical authenticity.